Hello, welcome to the Cool Tools Show and Tell. This week we have a very special guest, Larry Keeley. Larry, I've known you for a while, but would you um, mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure, I'll, I'll try. Um, I think of myself, Kevin, as an innovation scientist, owing to a fairly catastrophic lack of imagination. All I've done for four decades is to try to figure out how to get innovation to succeed instead of fail. Okay. And um, these days you're based in the in the California, right? Yeah, not far from you. I'm in Sausalito. Yeah. Moved here yeah. after 45 years in Chicago to be near my daughters. Right. Um, and to uh, to try to escape dysfunctional politics and find a state that seemed less dysfunctional. Welcome to California. So um, you. you have some really cool stuff. I always enjoy talking to you because you're coming from a different angle than most people. And um, given your background with design and other stuff, I think you have some really cool stuff for us. So what's what's a, one of your favorite tools that you want to share? To make it easier for people to track, the four things that I'm going to share are actually structured from simple in the sense, Kevin, that anybody can use them mm -hmm. to sophisticated. Um, where probably not everybody will have a use for them. Um, and so the four things, just an overview is a very simple tool that I like to use a lot, an OXO slicer uh, that I desperately hope will keep me from being a mediocre cook to a somewhat better cook. Um, the second tool in that same vein is a Paco jet machine, which I'll tell you a little story about when we get around to that point in the festivities. Third thing, and what really matters here is where I plotted them on the scale. The first two, Kevin, are, are physical tools. The second two are digital tools, okay? Uh -huh. So the third one, of course, which you're a far better user of than I am, is a Procreate drawing application. I use it on my iPad Pro and I, use it every day. And it's been one of the few things that's helped me to feel like I had some adaptation strategies to learn things and do things living all by myself through um, our COVID experience. And the fourth tool is something that I've built. This is version 11 of this technology over many decades to try to cure the ails of brainstorming. And with your help, I'm happy to give it away even though it's theoretically worth millions to anybody that's listening today. Um, oh. So it's not a sales pitch. No, no salesman will call. It's just a gift. Okay. Well, um, so that's the logic, Kevin, any questions about that and overview before we jump in? I am gobsmacked by how sophisticated this presentation is. Oh my gosh. You're the first one to have um, a presentation to lay it out with a preview and um, uh, to go through with this. So, Thank you. Already you've made a gift for us. This is really great. I wish every every guest on this would have such a thing. So, Larry, so tell us about the first one. The um... Yeah, of course. Let's dive right in there. Yeah. The first one is, of course, the OXO Slicer. It is available on Amazon and lots of other places for about 20 bucks or so. Look, here's the deal with me and cooking. I, I, I'm not good. Um, and the reason I know I'm not good is because I love great imaginative chefs. And so unfortunately, the standards I set for myself is don't bother doing it unless you're going to be, you know, kind of right up there with 
with uh, mm -hmm. uh, Noma um, in Copenhagen, which I've been to and got the first ever corporate group to be admitted there for a learning exercise there. So, so my standards in chefs and in restaurants are kind of off the charts and my skills are in the sub-basement. Um, but from time to time, Kevin, I'm dumb enough to buy really great gear and to think that this will transform me from a you know mediocre cook into a acceptable chef uh -huh. and um uh one of my daughters is a professional chef one of my brothers is a professional chef and we love to have you know truly great experiences and for a while i had an 800 dollars mandolin uh, you know big piece of gear and it as the old saying would go, it slices, it dices, it even makes julienne fries, whatever those are. And it had all kinds of, of uh, advanced functional capabilities. Uh -huh. And it took 20 minutes to set up and you had to store it in a special place. And, and, um, and the fact that it was just such an obstacle to frequent use me meant that I never used it um, ever and uh, gave it away to one of my daughters who's an accomplished um, chef. And, um, and instead, I got this cheap little thing that just sits in a drawer. It's got this really lovely, I'm not getting much resolution on this camera. Um, it's got this lovely safety guard so that it sets the thickness that you're gonna slice, keeps you from slicing your fingers when you slide, when you slide it all the way back. The newest version, this one's pretty several years old, but the newest version available on Amazon today comes with a handheld thing so that your fingers never get anywhere near the blade uh, for further safety. But the really cool thing, Kevin, is that it just sits in a drawer. I pop it out in 10 seconds and I can very precisely slice anything I want from garlic to onions to uh, beautiful carrots to uh, asparagus at quite an oblique angle to make it look quite beautiful. Um, and get the precise thickness that I want in seconds um, without also slicing my fingers, critically important uh, for a guy with the limited skills that I'm right. by. So okay. Is, is the um, thickness that you can slice it, is that adjustable or is that fixed? Yes, it's got three, um, again, not getting good resolution with okay. this camera, um, but three different thicknesses that you can uh -huh. easily pick and they click into place and when you click them into place and and I find that those settings are not anywhere near as infinitely adaptable as my super expensive mandolin used to be. Yeah. But geez, it's always right. One of those three thicknesses is always perfect for me and what I'm trying to achieve. And, you know, I do a lot of things with friends where I'll bring a salad to an event. And I'll have such beautifully sliced things that they they mistake me for somebody with actual skills, Kevin. So, uh, <laughs> so in that sense, it's uh, it's a it's a delightful artifact to own and so cheap. Yeah, and Oxo makes great stuff too. Always very well thought of and ergonomically designed. So yeah, Sam Farber was of course the founder of the Oxo organization. He's a good friend of mine. No, sadly, no longer with us. And for years, he was on the design school where I, where I, the board, where I teach and I'm also on the board. And, and, um, you know, the whole story, you know, Sam made his fortune inventing the first ever salad spinner and um, was retired happily in his gorgeous home in the mountains and hills of Virginia. Um, and his wife was a gourmet cook 
but suffered from arthritis, Kevin. And, um, and he would, he was loving his life. And his wife would always try to make a fabulous meal every night. And from time to time, he would hear the screams come from the kitchen as she sliced her fingers using a cheap vegetable slicer. And that's what caused him to decide to go back to work, hired um, Smart Design out of New York City to do the first ever OXO vegetable peeler, famously replaced the world's worst vegetable peeler that all of us owned at that time, typically sold for 79 cents. I like to say that that device uh, was actually a remarkable device because nobody in my judgment knows how this worked, Kevin. But when you see it hanging on the hang card at a grocery store for 79 cents, 89 cents, it looks great, surgical steel. And the moment you remove it from the store and take it into your house, it's corroded and rusty. And I, and I do not know how this simple 79 cent device um, has a location detection function that allows it to tell you that it can get rusty now because it's no longer <laughs> in the store, it's in your home. Um, but this happens within nanoseconds of your first purchasing. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy to use either. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, terrible. It yeah. just flails your hands all the time. Yeah. So, so, so Sam Farber decides to do something obviously insane to create a vegetable peeler 10 times that cost with surgical caliber steel, with neoprene rubber designed with this oval, you know, cross section so that it gets perfect torque in your hand and doesn't twist, gets tackier, not slipperier when it's wet. And the presumption always is that when you design something that's 10 times more expensive than the category leader, you're going to never make it. And of course, the OXO Good Grips um, uh, vegetable peeler became one of the hardest, hottest kitchen artifacts ever when it first launched. So right, pretty right. cool success. And now it is the default. Right. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Classic example of, of uh, you know, sort of design for accessibility and usability, uh, completely changing a category and, of course, upending the conventional wisdom that marketers and strategists have been teaching us in business schools forever. Yeah, fabulous example. I just love that. Thank you for that case because um, probably nothing exemplifies what it is that you do with your professional life as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just the idea of reinventing categories is good fun. Yeah. Uh, I thought we would go to the second one now, if yep. that's okay with you. Um, the second one is... Uh, the Paco jet machine. And, and I need to tell you a backstory about this in a moment. It's pretty large, Kevin. It stands maybe a foot and a half high. So uh, I've got the beakers in my hand here, but not the machine. This is what the machine looks like. That's what the beakers look like. This is what the micro tome looks like that actually makes it function and do its magic. And the way it does its magic is to create single serving, perfect aerated, delicious, precision um, servings of whatever's in the beaker. So I'm gonna stop sharing that to tell you how I learned about the Paco Jet and why it became so important to me in my life. 
Um, one day I was sitting with two guys I think you know pretty well, Nathan Mirvold and Danny Hillis, both of whom have been obsessive about their kitchens. Um, Nathan in particular spent more than $950,000 on the kitchen in his home and another laboratory class kitchen um, to create his uh, unbelievably obsessivist um, modernist cuisine series of books. Um, and um, so it's a cookbook you can buy for a mere $750 or so. And he created a special kitchen just to build that. And I'm lucky enough to be having dinner, just the three of us with these two guys who I know to be, you know, in Nathan's case, after becoming, you know, the, the chief technology officer at Microsoft, after being the laboratory assistant to, uh, uh, to the um, uh, to the famous physicist at, at Cambridge um, that wrote the brief history of time, um, he decides to teach himself to be a world class chef. And um, so, knowing that I was completely overmatched in this dinner conversation, I decided to just try something. I said to the my two brilliant. Um, companions. So guys, what is it that you just would not want to live without in your fancy pants kitchens that you built? And in stereo, without any coordination, exactly at the same instant, they both said Paco Jet. Hmm. And I then had to reveal the utter depth and Mm-hmm. and and uh, and comprehensiveness of my of my ignorance and said, what is a Paco Jet? And so they explained that it's this machine that can take anything in a beaker, whatever it is, something that you think is gonna be yummy. So whether it's tomatoes at the peak of tomato season that you're gonna mix together with some basil and some some oregano, whatever you want, or it can be savory or it can be sweet, Um, but whatever you put in the beaker and then freeze, Kevin, for at least 24 hours, can be screwed into the Paco jet. You screw this beaker into the Paco jet and very precise razor blades come Mm -hmm. down at very high speed and cut off just one serving. You set however many servings you want from one to 10, but one serving at a time. So it creates this perfect little, you know, sort of golf ball sized serving that is at exactly the right temperature and perfectly aerated to maximize the taste on your taste buds Mm. and serves it in a whatever dish you put under the machine so that you can then pop it on top of something else to make it a beautiful accompaniment or an intermezzo or whatever. But here's why this machine was so unbelievably important to me. For years, Kevin, when my three daughters were younger, we had a home in Nantucket. And our strategy whenever we were there in Nantucket was to try to have a simple life, right? So we would take turns deciding who got to cook tonight and whatever it was, it'd be fish or it'd be, you know, something fresh and yummy from the farms in Nantucket. Um, But I started this competition with my daughters that lasted for years. And it basically said, you're gonna be issued the beaker You keep it top secret what you put in the beaker. Your job is to be creative about what you put in the beaker. 
and you know label it with a code name that only you understand so that we can't infer what's in it and then you when it comes your turn service all the concoction that you've created from an infinite array of possibilities and the job for the rest of us is to both guess what you've made what you've made it from and then to comment on it and for years kevin this became like a great gift to me to my family members and to each other in enhancing our sense of creativity and our sense of possibilities what are some of the kinds of things that your daughters put in that you would never have ever thought of yourself unbelievably exceptional i remember once um one of them sort of created a salad that was a combination of really interesting lettuces, very distinctive herbs, a bunch of, um, of uh, uh, mandarins or tangerines at their peak. And so it sort of created this very um, explosive uh, salad experience in your mouth, all of it at the same moment and chilled perfectly so that it it just was electrifying and it none of us could guess all of the different ingredients because they were sophisticated and and layered right but, but it was, i understand how it could make kind of like a sherbet that was exactly the right texture but the flavors are all being combined together they're they're you have yeah. to kind of work with this yeah. idea that they aren't separated flavors or layers you're just going to be yeah one kind of so when I would do things like high-end coffee with really high-end chocolate and um, and maybe some spices, you know, some cayenne or something like that, uh -huh. um, you're right. It doesn't come out with those layers. It doesn't preserve, you know, sort of the chocolate bits in the coffee. Right. It mixes them all together so that you get all the tastes, you know, kind of in your mouth and at the right temperature. It's the aeration phenomenon that actually makes it so tasty hmm. okay and um you said so if you were serving like a, a party you could have it make 10 servings at once assuming you have enough material in there yeah one after another and i have the first generation paco jet machine the second generation paco jet machine is bluetooth enabled with an app and has other functions so i assume and by the way, the one reason I was a little hesitant to even share this with you, Kevin, is the, the, the device is pretty expensive. I think the first generation one is still 2000 bucks. The second generation one is maybe as much as 5000 bucks. So that's out of reach for most people. Um, but I have to say, of all the things I've ever owned, Kevin, in terms of the creative net result and the way it sort of made our summer so interesting uh -huh. um it was very much worth it yeah yeah worth it at, at twice the price i could see that i could definitely see that as um as a, a means of creativity and having kids and giving them ownership of that and having them surprise you and their family uh and that slight competitive competitive aspect of it of like trying yeah. to outdo yourself or um your father or your mother yeah. with exactly. something that's and that was what was so amazing about it is that I think it, I think my daughters became very quickly better at it than I was, yeah. um, and certainly more creative about their combinations and flavor profiles. 
Um, and that was joyous too, right? I mean, yeah. Nothing yeah. is more fun than to be able to say, wow, I never would have thought of this. And what a, what, what an amazing right. gift. So, so in, in um, just again, maybe describing for people who are in the audio only. So it's kind of like a large ish or I don't know, coffee machine size, maybe bigger. And the beakers is like a, about um, a pint or something size. Yeah, a, little, a little more than a pint. Um, yeah. So on your counter, it would take up as much space as a Vitamix machine, perhaps, yeah. Kevin, which lots of people know more than they know a right. coffee jet. Um, you do also have to make sure that you buy multiple beakers um, and they can take up a lot of space in your freezer if you're not right, careful. Right. And, and so the way you would prep food is, would you chop it up and blend it first or is it that you just put everything in and then the shaving of it as it's frozen is what chops it up? Exactly right. You, it's very low. Um effort to try to make your beaker filled with things. You might want to loosely chop it and lightly mix it so that you're not getting layers in the beaker, right? Um, but a, a simple hand mix of the things that you're doing is quite enough to get it to work. It needs to freeze well, so there needs to be maybe a little bit of liquid. Um, and there's just tons of great um, cookbooks that uh, you can both buy that come with um, the Paco jet machine or that you can find online because mm. the same uh, chefs all over the world use the Paco jet and rely yeah. on it. And so the creative kinds of uh, things that you can find easily online are abundant. But the funnel serving is going to be cold or frozen. Yes. Right? yes. Um, although you can then let it warm up a bit if you want it to be somewhat warmer but yeah. the temperature it's delivered at is not the kind of super cold that's going to give you brain freeze it's kind of just exactly the right temperature so that the little serving holds together without melting right away but you can scoop it put it in your mouth and it just like wow. the flavors all coats your tongue very quickly that's what's wow. The genius of it. The Paco Jet. Thank you for introducing that to me because I had no idea. I would have been like you. What? The Paco what? So now um, <laughs> now it's something that I'm aware of. And I can certainly see how if you were running a, a restaurant, you might want to want to have one of these. So um, that's really brilliant. Thank you, Larry. So what's um, your tool number three? Tool number three after a Paco Jet um, starts to get us into the digital realm. Um, and, you know, I live by myself and I was very careful to try to avoid um, COVID exposure uh, for the last two years and living by myself, both in Chicago. And then when I moved here to, to Northern California, um, I needed some way to try to give myself new challenges. Jay Doblin, my great mentor, told me I was pathetic at drawing and told me there was no excuse for that. And um, this coming from one of the world's greatest designers where drawing was, you know, sort of second nature and, and easy for him. So, um, so I, I found the procreate app. Um, these are just some of my, you know, drawings, as you know, procreate keeps them in your so-called gallery. And this would be a typical one that I would play with. And I try to do at least one of these every day, Kevin. 
Um, um, just to give myself practice, usually with different kinds of techniques, 3D modeling, or trying to represent something, or trying sometimes to actually uh, address an idea um, and, um, and work my way through it. Uh, when I was privileged to come to your office recently, and I imposed upon you to show me your Procreate drawings, the exceptional range and skill and the variety that you have is orders of magnitude better than what I've achieved. But here's what I love about Procreate. It's just so useful and it's so functional. And it's such a joy to use on a modern iPad Pro with an Apple Pencil. Um, so things that, again, you know very well, you can do a rough you know, rectangle and just pause momentarily and it gives you a perfect rectangle, which then you can easily scale. Um, there are so many different kinds of tools you can use. And I particularly love the sketching tools and then the charcoal tools. Uh, I'm not very proficient at the painting tools, so I'd like to get good at that. And um, more than anything, what I've discovered is that for a complete duffer, my, my whole training, Kevin, is verbal, right? I mean, I was a champion debater and I, my family members, seven brothers and sisters are all totally verbal. And to retread myself as kind of a visual person has been the challenge of a lifetime. I've taught in the world's toughest design school now for 39 years. And it was always embarrassing to be teaching designers, but to, and, and I always say this, I'm not a designer. Um, you know, I can't play one on TV. Um, and yet I think it's embarrassingly uh, inappropriate for me to be constantly talking about the visual world with no mm -hmm. construction skills. So that's something that I've assigned myself, especially during COVID, to try to get less stupid about. And um, so, so this is an app that runs on an iPad. And I think it runs on the phone, too, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. That's right. And, and I think you can also put it on an Android tablet as well. I think there's right. versions. And you can use a stylus uh, or the pencil, but you can also use your fingers because it's a touch screen. Um, but you were saying, but, but I mean, it's, obviously it can be used for kind of sketching and painting, but it can be used for more refined work too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And what kind of things have you used it for? Like, did you make your slides and presentations using that? I have, I didn't today. Okay. Um, uh, what I often do is I will um, put into the background layer this is one of the nice things about Procreate, as you know, is you can construct your imagery in multiple layers. So often when it's something that I'm interested in visually, I'll put that in a background layer as a photo or an object, and then I'll create a layer on top of that, and I'll try to do something you know, a little bit derivative, and then I'll make that background layer go away and try to remember it visually and use that to sort of steadily give myself challenges. So if I'm trying to learn how to sort of deal with uh, a visual concept, say for instance, transparency or 3D modeling or a different form of you know, lighting or a light penetration, um, I will often just put something in that's a sort of visual stimulus. And I find it's so 
much easier for me to learn when I've got something kind of in the form and and available to me as a layer that I can stare at and then make go away and then try to do it in my own interpretive way. Yeah, That's much easier for me for whatever reason than looking separately off in the distance at a physical thing and right, trying right, to right. produce it. So Yeah. Yeah. You can almost imagine it's sort of painting over something and because yeah. of there, the proportions are there. And um, you can even do that in other ways where you can, um, um, to, to, to kind of praise uh, procreate, you can take a painting and you can actually extract out its palette mm -hmm. to use the colors. So um, that's something else that is going on in paintings is that the colors are very, usually if there's a great one, very deliberate and they're made to, they're selected to kind of work together and you can actually learn a lot by uh, borrowing that palette and using something for yourself. So that's another function that it has. Yeah. Um, and the the other thing about it, I have to just say, is that it's $10, which mm -hmm. has to be the bargain of the century. For $10, this is an amazing amount of intelligence that's baked into it. It's just, I, I don't even know how they can possibly do that. And there's so many tools in it and it gets better and better. And like always these days, Kevin, as you know, there's a gazillion YouTube videos that can allow you to master certain functional elements right. of it. But individuals have offered up separate from the app developers right. themselves. Um, so I, I like to get on a roll. So if I'm interested in say, for instance, Kandinsky's art, constructivist art or Paul Clay's art or David Hockney's astonishing drawing styles. I will try to, as you say, sort of put in something that I'm inspired by. You can use the digital tools to duplicate the palette. I can create a layer and then, you know, as you pointed out, point, paint over it. I try not to be that derivative. I just try to be inspired by the style and but bounce back and forth between that layer that I make visible and then my own interpretive way. And it's been a, a, a better way for me to learn how to do drawings than what happened when I was lucky enough to work with Jay Doblin for 10 years where he would do an astonishing drawing and say like that. And I would say, <laughs> how'd you do that? And he would say, <laughs> the problem of expertise, as you know, is that very often the people that are truly gifted at something don't know how to explain how they did it. Right, exactly. And they may not even know how they do it. So Correct. Um, yeah, this is fabulous. Okay, so highly recommended Procreate for the iPad or your phone um, or other tablets. Um, really great. Very versatile, not just for sketching, but also for thinking visually. So. Um, Great recommendation. So Larry, um, how about your fourth and- Final one. Exactly. Final and maybe the best one. Oh, I don't know about the best one, but it's something that I've worked on for two decades. Um, so this is what I call a platform construction toolkit, Kevin. And, and um, where it comes from, is my work as an innovation scientist where I've been able to prove for many decades now that brainstorming is basically a carcinogen that the Surgeon General should get around to regulating. And yet it is nearly always the default way that people think 
they're supposed to generate ideas. Um, and can, so you, can, all, you just, can you just maybe for those who don't know, just describe how brainstorming is normally would work and what people, you know, so we make sure we have the same idea in our mind. Sure. So in a typical brainstorming session, you will have a leader at the front of the room uh, presenting problem or a situation that you want people to address. You'll fill the room with colleagues and sometimes strangers or experts, and you'll say, okay, now let's brainstorm. And the, there are, you know, there's the famous rules of brainstorming formalized at IDEO and festooned on every conference room wall, which starts out with rules like there's no such thing as a bad idea. Just between you and me, Kevin, I think the entire Trump administration was a fabulously <laughs> bad idea. So I'm skeptical about rule number one of the rules of brainstorming. Um, it goes on from there to say more ideas is better than fewer ideas. And again, my evidence as a scientist is that a smaller number of bigger ideas is much, much, much more valuable than a large number of weak ideas. Um, and in really sophisticated brainstorming sessions, after you've been uh, pushed hard to generate more ideas on either flip charts or whiteboards, then the really exciting moment comes when you hand people a bunch of sticky dots and you let them go around the room and vote on their favorite ideas in the brainstorming session with the sticky dots. And, and the belief is that if a particular idea uh, garners more sticky dots, then you're using the wisdom of the crowd and you're further um, uh, adding sophistication to your brainstorming technique. So is that enough of a basic grounding? In yes. Ancient methodology. And you, you've summed it up very well because I'm very familiar with that process. Yes. And I think most listeners by now probably will be too. Almost everybody's been extruded through these indignities in a variety of ways. And I can prove, Kevin, with a tremendous amount of data that it is catastrophically bad in terms of originating ideas. And so for years, I've asked myself and colleagues the question, what would be a better way to do it? And so what I'm sharing with you and your, um, your listeners on audio or video is version 11 of this technology. Um, what I try to do is to set a level of ambition. I think the most valuable ideas that we know have transformed the world in our lifetime, Kevin, are things that have become platforms. Common ones are Google, Airbnb, Amazon, um, and all the other ones that have been Facebook even. And if you want to generate an idea with the power to change the world, the question is, how do you do that? For most individuals, most of the time, being asked to do such a thing would be daunting. It would galvanize them right into an activity. As I like to say, they would want to go home, climb into bed and pull the covers over their head instead of having to be asked to, okay, dream up a platform now. So what I think is, the single biggest error in most of innovation is that people think they should be doing it by enhancing creativity in what are called low protocol methods. And what I know now after decades of studying the outcomes and looking for the drivers of better outcomes is that what we should be doing is high protocol methods for generating ideas. So 
high protocol, Kevin, is what you get if you are unlucky enough to have to go into a hospital emergency room at three o'clock in the morning, you know, with blood spurting out of an artery or some other serious life-threatening condition. If you go into a hospital emergency room at that time with a very urgent problem, one of the things that's sort of clever is that they don't make you fill out the forms, especially if there's blood spurting out of your artery. They know you have roughly six minutes before you're dead. And they're going to go from conditions of most probable cause to conditions of least probable cause to try to solve that problem as quickly as possible. This is how we've codified medicine and how we've actually learned to teach it to young people to achieve the rather, I think, remarkable, astonishing, and brilliant outcome that even at three o'clock in the morning when you're getting a medical student, they're actually reasonably unlikely to kill you because of their protocols. And the question I've been asking for a long time is, what are the protocols for innovation? And what you're seeing here, Kevin, are 11 by 17, or in, in metric terms, um, uh, A3 size pieces of paper um, that codify what we know about how people should be generating ideas. So this first page is all about reminding people of the principles of what constitutes a platform, plus a space to write down the team member name so you know who to give the Nobel Prizes to, and a space to write down your goal for this particular concept development session. This is the critical page, Kevin, the really the one that matters most, and anybody can use this successfully in about an hour. 14 questions asked in a certain sequence that gives you the net result of having one idea instead of dozens or hundreds with a greater than 50% probability that it would succeed. That's astonishing right there. This is a general purpose one that I've used for years with my graduate students. Um, in a particular industry or a particular category, I might customize it slightly, but this general purpose one is highly useful. After that, people often have the question, Kevin, well, what do I do now? I've got an idea. What, what should I do to build it? And this is the brilliant work of one of my colleagues called Ryan Pickell. Uh, Ryan was a graduate student at the Institute of Design and then a superstar at Doblin, my firm. And, and one day I was going past him in the hallway and I said, dude, there's only 10 types of innovation in the world. Why don't you give me a generic list of all the options under each one? And Ryan, who is hilariously funny and utterly charming, but would often for laughs um, adopt the sort of Eeyore um, sensibility, looked at me and growled at me and said, that would be hard. And I said, yeah, Ryan, I know. That's why I'm not doing it. You do it. And, um, and then I forgot all about it. And two months later, he comes back and gives me this astonishing list of 116 known ways to build anything, which I'll share with you in a deeper version in a moment. For about 12 years, I asked the question, if you know what you're trying to do and you're trying to get it to happen faster and cheaper than ever before, what are the newest lightweight approaches to innovation, what I call clouds, crowds, partners, and prizes? So this page helps you to select exactly the right tools to get your idea to be executed swiftly. And the final page of the five pages of the platform construction toolkit gets your business model right. 
so that you can reliably get it to launch hot and then to get deeper and then to change the category. And so this is my way of codifying, Kevin, all the steps somebody needs to go through to get from, let's just call it a problem, to a very specific set of suggestions. And to double down on that brilliant work of Ryan Piquel, these are the 10 types of innovation which we discovered 26 years ago and have, it's one of the deepest research um, pieces of uh, frameworks and tools systems in the history of the innovation field. But with Ryan, I said, dude, what are the ways we can build anything? And to his credit, he not only constructed a perfect list of 116 known tactics, but he, uh, because he was actually trained as a designer and actually skilled in these kinds of things, turned it into a deck of cards that you can, um, buy from Amazon now. I just checked before our conversation, they're still available for like um, uh, 60 bucks or so. And it codifies all the ways you can build anything. Um, and and uh, so as I like to say, isn't it kind of cool that now you can deal yourself a poker hand of innovation? If mm -hmm. you already know what you're trying to build, these tactics cards tell you how to build it. If you don't know what you're trying to build, you can use the tactics cards structured a according to the types of innovation to push you to change your concept in really deep ways. So, so that's my, my little way of thinking about trying to get innovation to be less abstract and more right. concrete. Yeah. So you, you have a very kind of well-refined process for original goal and then going through the idea generation and kind of even refining it further to how you can execute. But going back to your, example of not brainstorming in the brainstorming they come in and they try to do a lot of ideas very very indiscriminately and um you're saying that's not very useful but in your in your version in the very beginning um <clears throat> you there was like 14 questions you said that you began yeah. with. Uh, we couldn't really read them um there wasn't um resolution enough what would be an example of one of those 14 questions um, yeah, okay, so one of my favorites is number five called Crux. What is the hardest part of this challenge we would have to get right? Okay. Okay. All right. Um, and another one um, uh, is who would be the dream team of partners you'd like right. to have on this capability? And, right. and so, so you go through and you answer. These are very, um, what's the word? They're not easy to answer. You have to really kind of think through that. And at the end of that, um, you have you have some things. Then then do you generate ideas as a next step from that? No, you, typically, you're generating narratives after that. So you've already got yourself a hypothesis now, a reasonably strong mm -hmm. hypothesis of what you think the world needs, and it's defensible. Mm -hmm. And even if you haven't been given an advanced degree in innovation, Kevin, what's sort of cool about this is it forces you to use the sophisticated thinking to answer these questions that we know tend to produce better outcomes, more competitive platforms, more likely to succeed <laughs> innovations. In mm -hmm. And that's the same thing that happens, as I like to say, in medical schools. You train young people how to not kill us. You know, 
um, with high protocols. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it seems like again, the, the the kind of model people have about brainstorming is this storm that there's this flurry of lots of ideas, and then you gather the ones that you need. And you're saying, no, 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 we're going to kind of generate just a few ideas through a different process, and those ideas there may be more than one, but they are going to be much more likely to be what you want. Yes. Now, to be fair, Kevin, uh, what I have finessed away is a complicated and important piece of prep work. Okay. Um, the platform construction toolkit is most useful if you've spent days and or weeks trying to be reasonably robust in the logic of the problem you're trying to solve. Right. Part of what makes brainstorming such a fog machine, such a dangerous tactic mm -hmm. is people aren't even very precise about what they want the brainstorming to address. Mm. So to a very large extent, much of the hard work of innovation comes in researching the problem we're solving. Mm -hmm. And so that is a piece of work that comes before you use the innovation development toolkit or the mm -hmm. platform development toolkit. But once you know the itch you're trying to scratch, and it can be very imprecisely formed, it doesn't have to be um, you know, deeply researched and perfectly accurate and defensible, um, but you define it as, gee, I would like to have uh, a COVID test that is, um, self-administered, easy for people to use, but automatically report its results anonymously so that we don't have this problem we have right now, which is lots of people are doing home COVID tests, but we no longer have robust population level data about the incidence of COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's an example of a problem that you might say, I'd like to solve that. I'd like to solve it, not just for COVID, but for any future um, pandemic that we're trying to address, a new sort of home-based testing methodology that self-reports in a fair and anonymous way that doesn't violate people's privacy. Um, so that's a, 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 about the right level of definition of a problem. And I just made that up on the spot, Kevin, I haven't solved that one yet, but the platform development toolkit would then take you through that and solve it in a really reasonably robust way. Right, so just taking that example, and then you would do these 14 questions where you're trying to think through all the different aspects of what a solution might look like. And then then that next step is that you would then, after that, have one or two ideas that would kind of emerge from that process? Typically one idea that the, that the authoring teams are willing to hang their careers on. Mm -hmm. They're willing to go to the bat and say, this is what we think the answer is give us a small amount of money to prototype it and test it. And we'll be able to tell you whether or not we're the only people in the world that think that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like um, I say, Kevin, the whole deal is brainstorming generates a large number of little ideas, platform development toolkits develop a small number of big ideas. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's a useful contribution to the pantheon of innovation methodologies. Mm -hmm. And so, so one of the, um, one of the things I've noticed in doing 
scenario stuff and other kinds of mm-hmm. exercises like this um, in the corporate environment is that um, it really is difficult to get people to think broadly, wildly, outside of what they're used to, to challenge their assumptions, um, to to leapfrog, whatever. It is really difficult to get ideas outside of a normal shell. So the idea of brainstorming was that that looseness and that freedom and that encouragement from going crazy would enable people to get outside. How do you, how does your system overcome the kind of what I would call kind of a natural bias to remain in that zone of, you know, what people think of as convention? Uh, Largely because the questions themselves um, force you to ask certain and answer certain things in a a really disciplined sequence that we know to be correlated with actionability and better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So you're right that brainstorming is often thought of as a way to enhance creativity in enterprises. But I spent a year going down that pathway, Kevin. I, like most people, when I started my career, thought that the conventional wisdom about innovation was largely correct. I've subsequently learned that it's mostly mythological, right? And my whole life has been about trying to replace myth with method and sort out the lore from the logic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what I think you'll discover, especially in enterprises of scale, is that by and large, they have many, many, many more ideas than they have resources to pursue. They're pretty lousy at sorting out the particularly good ones. And brainstorming tends to be exacerbating rather than ameliorating that pattern by generating many, many, many more ideas, leading to, as I like to say, related patterns of dysfunction. So following a brainstorming session, which will often cost a company thousands of dollars just in professional facilitation and hundreds of thousands of dollars when you add up the, you know, sort of payroll time of the people in the room. Um, And they'll generate in a great brainstorming session, they'll be very proud of themselves. They'll say, wow, we generated 382 ideas or 411 ideas or whatever. And then I always like to say, kind of being the skunk at the company picnic. um, So what happened to them afterwards? And they'll say, after they think about it, well, nothing. And I say, well, that's not right. I mean, some poor schmo had to type them up. And I said, that was fun because they were written on indecipherable scrawls on, you know, fancy pants, 3M post-it notepads. So they probably induced all kinds of errors, just translating the ideas to a typewritten form. And then they always like to say, yeah, well, we circulated the ideas to determine which of them were most correlated with our strategic priorities, which I like to say is fancy pants words and nobody knows how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up in, in big companies, Kevin, is this very costly world where they usually have to spend two to $6 million on a so-called stage gate process, which is to design to protect them from the lousy ideas that they would otherwise commit resources to. So if you think about it from a input output workflow pattern, what you immediately discover is that the brainstorming you know, phenomenon 
is, is a funnel driving more lousy ideas into a dysfunctional corporate system. So they've pasted on top of that another dysfunctional system called the stage gate process, which again, I can prove this with beautiful data, Kevin, inherently adds another nine months to a developmental cycle um, before they pick something. And they have a nearly perfect track record of ultimately at the end of the day, even after a stage gate process, um, biasing in favor of the familiar known ideas and nearly always getting rid of the boldest ideas. And, um, and so the whole toolkit I shared with you is specifically designed to try to socially and, and systemically solve each of those dysfunctions. Wow. So you said in the beginning, you prefaced by saying this was going to be available. Uh, how is it going to be available? For I've people? sent it to you already. Your team and, and has. It a, is, a, is it a PDF or what is it? Yeah, say? it's a secure um, cloud link to the tools. Yeah. In their generic student form uh -huh. um, that anybody can use um, more or less without a manual. And if they have questions or comments or if they're baffled by any part right. of it, you can, of course, send me a message and I'll try right. to resolve so it. So this is something you can download and it's a X number of pages of PDF and you yeah. start at the beginning and you can work through with your group. Yeah, a small team, even as few as two or three people can use it in about a half a day to solve a problem that they're actually trying to really solve. And by the way, Kevin, I've used variations of this toolkit for personally helping to author more than 14,800 platform level solutions in 55 different industries on five continents. So we have enormous amounts of data about each and every question and when it succeeded and when it failed. And as a result, it's allowed us to write the tool in a witty way. So, uh, you know, uh, question number two is, you know, what will it do? And then in parentheses and in italics, it says, how would you explain it to your mother? And, um, and that sort of wittiness is our attempt to humanize it all and to get people to respond at the right level of detail inside of the tool. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I can see why that might um, channel people along a path that, um, again, is not trying to produce lots of things, but only a few good ones. So um, I love to look at it and give it a try. Thank you for releasing it into the world, especially to our listeners and readers here at Cool Tools. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add in terms of a current project that you're working on or um, something that you are very enthusiastic about right now? Well, that's a very generous question. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I'm very proud of the work that I'm doing in a platform called Just Serve, uh, sponsored by the um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as their so-called gift to the world. I, I'm not a member of the church, but they have a long history of using innovation effectively. And so they have created this great orchestrating platform that would allow volunteers anywhere in the world to work on community-centered projects. This has, no, you know, you don't have to be a member of the church. It's just a way of trying to get people to do the things that communities need. And last year, 
we're it's in the eighth year of development. Last year they modernized it to be completely blockchain based and and partnering with every other mainstream organization like the YMCA and the Red Cross and the Rotary International and and dozens of other organizations all around the world. And it has orchestrated um, uh, you know roughly four. billion worth of free hours of labor last year to do community projects. I think in our post-COVID time, Kevin, the more we can learn to do things with and for each other, the sooner we'll we'll get our our uh, our communities. So this is this is a matchmaking thing is like you or someone out there has some skill or some time and they want to volunteer and this is a way to match up their skills or their interests with a project is that the idea yeah exactly so you can learn you can just go to the website justserve.org see thousands of projects that are posted dial it down to your zip code and decide that you really do want to go help build a or clean up a park or or build a a a little after school clinic of some sort for people and um and you know, if you've got tools, it'll ask you, you know, if you've got a chainsaw or something and you might be able to use your tools. Right. Um, but mostly it allows you to get practice doing things that community leaders have decided are important locally. And what's even cooler about that, Kevin, is that every time you volunteer, it builds a secure and robust CV for you of um, the volunteer projects that you did. Oh, I like, wow. I'd like to believe that just a few years from now, um, the list of comprehensive community-oriented projects that a high school kid was involved in and spontaneously high schools all over the world are developing chapters of Just Serve. None of us expected this or predicted this. Um, I think the sort of list of projects that you were involved with in a secure blockchain-based CV will become potentially as important as your SAT scores in getting into the better university. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Wonderful. Just serve. We'll be sure to link to that. Thank you again for your involvement in that and for letting us know about it. This has really been great. You gave us five tools. So um, thank you, Larry. It's really been a delight. And as always, I learned so much from our chat and I appreciate your coming on the Cool Tools Show and Tell. Always my pleasure to do anything with you, Kevin. I'll take anything excuse to collaborate with you, my friend. The work that you do is unbelievable and truly a gift to me and to, I think, the whole world. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you. We're glad that you enjoyed this issue of the Cool Tools Show and Tell. Just want to remind you that we have some other coolish material on our YouTube channel here. Please subscribe, comment, like. In addition, um, this Cool Tools Show and Tell is also available in an Audible podcast form. You can subscribe to it wherever you subscribe to other podcasts if you just wanted to listen. And if you're listening, know that there is a visual version of this on our YouTube channel where we're actually showing the tools and um, there's a little bit more of a visual component there. In addition, the same folks that put us, uh, the Cool Tools website out, we also put out a free newsletter every week. It's very, very short. It's one page or less. We recommend six very brief items um, that are very succinct, easy to read. You can deal with it in a couple minutes. And every week we bring to you 
the six cool things that we have uncovered and want to share. And it's called Recommendo with one M, recommendo.com. You'll be able to find it there. It's free. Join 50,000 plus other subscribers every Sunday morning. You'll get it in your email box. And it's actually one of the most popular things that we produce. But we do produce other newsletters as well. One of them is called What's in Your Bag. We have one that goes out to um, tools and tips for your workshop. So you can get those at our website. Um, and they are also free. And finally, um, I want to mention the fact that um, we do have a Patreon and um, this uh, podcast and this vidcast are supported by Patreon supporters. The minimum is a dollar a month. And for that, you get um, an email to ask us anything. We'll respond and um, answer your question if we're able to. There are other higher levels. You can all see those at our Patreon page. And all those links are below right here. So thank you again for being a fan and um, we'll keep producing stuff if you enjoy it. Thanks. We are thankful for all our Patreon supporters and this week's supporters include Dave Rogolich, Mock Nerd, Mark Goebel, Stuart Brand, Paul Hosey, What Bear, Bill Schuler, Tom Markham, Ellen Lee, and Jim Spofford. We're really grateful for your support. Thank you, each one.